Global inflation's at a four-decade high. Cost of living pressures are biting. The world's economy hasn't emerged from COVID in a healthy state. Yet, according to Oxfam, the world's richest have bagged twice the wealth of everyone else combined. So is the economic system broken? Does it work for the poor? And is our growth model sustainable? This is Bill Crew. Welcome to the discussion. John Hewson is a professor of economics and a former Australian politician. He's also a member of the non-government trilateral commission addressing economic and political challenges. John Hewson, the IMF chief, says the global economic outlook was less bad than she feared. What's your prognosis for the world's economy this year? She had every reason to be concerned because uh, the world is teetering on the brink of a global recession. Clearly the major countries, uh, the US, the UK, parts of Europe, are all uh, close to recession. And China's had its its issues with managing the, the pandemic. They went from a commitment to zero COVID to... Um, ditching that and of course that's caused quite a lot of uncertainty as to the strength of the Chinese economy which is fundamental to the strength of the world economy. So um, it's a very uh, challenging time from that point of view. Now I guess inflation is going to ease in some countries sooner than others. Where's it likely to ease first? Well it's very difficult to say. I think a lot of the inflation has been due to what we call supply side pressures or supply chain pressures. Some of that's come from the war in Ukraine and um, some of it's come from the Chinese experience with the pandemic. It's disrupted supply chains and put the cost base up dramatically. On top of that, you've had governments stimulating their economies in the context of the pandemic and that's boosted aggregate demand and that's put upward pressure on prices. People in the West are feeling the pinch, but in the poorest countries, people face starvation. Is there any alternative but to kind of ride out the economic storm? Well, this inequality as an issue has become, has, has been there for a long time. It's been getting worse. The rich countries seem to be getting richer and the poorer ones seem to be getting poorer. The pandemic certainly didn't help that. It impacted more on the developing world. But I, I think some of the conspicuous uh, inequality in some of the major countries is a major concern. It's starting to become an issue in Australia. People are starting to recognise it. And... Um, you know, in the United States, it's been an issue for quite some time. The IMF's predicting global economic growth of about 2.7%. But what if the world's economy doesn't perform? Well, if it doesn't grow at that pace, we'll have global recession, increases in unemployment. A recession will be will hit the lower income groups a lot harder than it hits the higher income groups. Compounds the problem of inequality. You know, there's been this commitment to growth at all costs which is where you might say the system is, is breaking down because uh, growth as an end in itself has not provided the... It's created a lot of wealth, but that wealth hasn't been distributed equitably. And uh, this has been a global problem for decades. I'm talking with Professor John Hewson. John, the world has finite resources, yet economic growth relies on the very opposite being true. So is the growth model inherently flawed? Well, I think one of the things that's happened right through to the middle part of the last century was there was this pursuit of growth at all costs. And business in particular was ignoring the environmental and social consequences of that growth strategy. One of the reasons we have climate change is that we kept digging these fossil fuels out of the ground and burning them. 
and not worrying about the consequences of that in terms of uh, global pollution. And, um, but I think you're getting close to the stage where world resources are at a level where they can't sustain the population of the planet moving forward. Even now we're close to that being a problem. And people are not addressing that the limitation of resources. So what's, what's going to happen if one day everything flatlines and we reach a point of maximum resource production? What's going to happen? Well, I think we're, I've set up a body in Australia called the Council for the Human Future, where we are focusing on what we call 10 mega risks to the future of humanity on this planet and the sustainability of the planet. You've got big issues, not just uh, in terms of resource depletion. And the world is drifting. Nobody, no government in the world has a strategy to deal with the, the survival of, of, of humans on the planet. I mean, I like to think of elections as being a genuine contest of ideas where each party is called on to tell us how they see the future, what they're going to do in terms of a role of government into the future. And you don't get that debate in very many countries. You had, you know, in the US, you had Trump running on the line, make America great again. Yeah. And a lot of people debating whether it was actually ever great. You know? yeah. And what's his concept of getting great again? Um, more and more of the same, you know, which is, is counterproductive, as you've been saying. So let's look at the other side, John. Can the global economy prosper without consuming ever more of the world's resources? Well, it doesn't need to do that, does it? There is an efficiency in the use of resources that, that, that often gets ignored. I think you need to think about what, what growth you want. And it's not growth at all costs. It's not just the bottom line making profit. There's a fundamental question always, is that sustainable? Professor John Hewson's with me. Now, John, at the core of this discussion is the inequality of wealth distribution. Because Oxfam reported that in the last two years, the richest 1% accumulated nearly twice as much wealth as the rest of the world combined. Is this imbalance good for the economy? No, it's not. It's... Um I think what you're seeing in terms of the global economic debate is a greater recognition of the need to do something about inequality. It's one of the threats that sit there to the future of humanity. You can't keep building a bigger and bigger gap between the rich and the poor. And the numbers that you quote from Oxfam, and there are many of these sorts of numbers around, are really quite alarming, I think. You can see similar numbers in Australia, the number of people that got wealthy, wealthier in the pandemic compared to those at the bottom who didn't. And yet government policy didn't recognise that. No. When they reset uh, JobSeeker, the payment for the unemployed, they set it below the measured poverty line. You know, we don't worry about those people. They're going to fall off the pace and that's it. That's, that's a bad attitude. And you're building more and more inequality into the system. You've got a tax system that discriminates against low to middle income earners in favour of the wealthy. Very generous superannuation concessions, very generous housing concessions, and so on, which are to the benefit of the top end of town, as we say. Now, governments are not addressing the fact that inequality is a major constraint. I've been arguing for a couple of years that I think every cabinet submission should have an, a, a, an attachment, the impact of this decision on inequality in the country. So it becomes a matter of conscious decision. So what about people who dismiss these reports like the Oxfam one and say trickle-down economics shares the wealth? Does trickle-down economics work? I'm still waiting for the trickle. <laughs> you know, 
Well, it relies on the fact that uh, you know the, you give business more money, they will go out and employ more people and, and pay them more money and, and so on. Well, there's no evidence that that happens. You give businesses more profit and they tend to distribute it among the management and the shareholders. Now, we've talked about growth and inequality, so that leads to this inevitable question, John. Global capitalism as we know it, can it survive in the 21st century? Well, I think you're, you're seeing this starts to be recognised that this is a challenge. And uh, how do you define capitalism? And we've had a couple of versions of that in the last few years in Australia. We had previous Prime Minister who had his can-do capitalism and that saw the favouring of the, the gas industry in response to the to generate growth in response to the pandemic impact. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the current Treasurer came out and said that he wanted to redefine capitalism. Look, the reality is that the business community, despite the, what we've been saying, is being forced to face the consequences of their behaviour. ESG investment has become a trend where, where investors look at the environmental, social impacts of the business as well as the governance of the business. And these issues are driving the corporate sector to be more responsive. They're starting to accept that they need to do something about their environmental impact and they're now consciously trying to reduce their emissions. We have uh, them worried about their social impact uh, and um, we've got a focus coming on social impact investing. You know, you can invest in a lot of programs that due to uh, predominantly to the benefit of the low to middle income groups and they should be encouraged as investment alternatives. People can make a dollar out of that. It, it is forcing a change of behaviour and attitude and in that you're going to see a reassessment of growth. I mean, going for growth at all costs, irrespective of the consequences on the depletion of resources globally, um, has been a major reason we have climate change, as I said, you know, as an issue. We don't worry about that. The big, the big uh, polluters don't pay for that pollution. I've always found that this debate about you know, the coal companies and energy companies that, that, um, that burn fossil fuels and, and governments that don't have emissions reduction standards on their cars, but you know, they, they, they let you burn whatever you like in your car to keep going. Um, they ignore the, uh, the consequences of that behaviour. Now, if you, you and I um, pollute a river, we will get charged and heavily penalised. If I drop some asbestos on your front lawn, I'll get heavily penalised. Yet when you burn fossil fuels, there's no penalty. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, the energy companies are not paying any penalty for the damage that they're doing. So, John, if we were doing this interview in 2100, how might the global economy look then? Well, I think we've got to ask ourselves a serious question whether the planet will be able to sustain the population that's in prospect by 2100, given the uh, the likely impact of global warming that's, that's going to exceed the Paris commitment and resource depletion is accelerating. People don't look at the consequences, say, of, of global warming, but it has been the source of a lot of pressure that has impacted negatively on low to in, lower income groups. We've had famines, we've had wars, I launched a book a year or so ago on food or war and the author focused on the fact that the source of most wars has been a shortage of food. Climate change has very significant consequences just beyond the fact that 
you have extreme weather events. That's as far as a lot of the popular debate goes. And we need to have governments that take a, a broader view of these issues. We don't have that. So we're building a, we are destroying life on the planet. And the risks of that are very significant, very big, big risks that are not being adhered to. I wrote to the United Nations, to the Secretary-General Guterres um, a year or so ago, arguing that I, want, I, I identified all these, what we think are the 10 catastrophic risks to the future of humanity on the planet and suggested that they have a division of the UN that focuses on mega risks. And uh, I was told, yeah, just, he's been saying a lot of this sort of thing himself in speeches. Um, we're told you have to get your government to propose it to the General Assembly. <laughs> She'll put another hurdle up for me. Um, this, you just shake your head. There is there's this denialism. We don't want to know about these things. We know there are problems there. We'll talk about them from time to time. But there's not a hasn't been the concerted effort to deal with climate or food shortages. It's just coming, a big one. John Houston, thanks so much for talking to us. There's so much to think about in all of that. Yeah, God bless you and thank you so much. It's time to lie down. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs>